The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Fighting for Love. This show will help you turn conflict into collaboration in all your relationships. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank, an attorney mediator since 1985. She's a mediator for the Orange County Superior Court Civil Mediation Panel. Mari's a professor of negotiations and conflict management and has been a certified state bar trainer for over 25 years. To learn more about the show and our great guests, please visit conflicthealing.com. Mari, what's your show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, today our show is really a mixture of spirituality and enlightenment and dreams, and it's, it's really wonderful. I just finished reading Letters to the River, A Guide to a Dream Worth Living by Sparrow Hart. And it's really almost like a poetry book. It's prose, but it's it just you can really feel it as you're reading. It's uh, you know it it enlightens and inspires and incites your sensations. Let me tell you a little bit about Sparrow. Sparrow Hart is the founder of Circles of Air and Stone, which he began ex- when he began exploring nature and wilderness. Back in 1971, with a five-month solo pilgrimage through the Cascades and the Canadian Rockies, and he undertook his first vision quest in 1980. Then, over the last 38 years, he has led over 180 small group vision quests and undertaken over 35 quests of his own. So that is a way to really get in touch with yourself and to love yourself. And you know the name of our show is Fighting for Love, Turn Conflict into Collaboration. But we all have to really learn to love ourselves. And boy, if you're going to go on a solo quest, you better like the guy or gal you're with. So um, this is a, a wonderful book, and I'm glad to have him join us from Vermont this morning. So Sparrow, thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm happy to be here, and and I loved what you said. If you're going to go on a solo, you better like the <laughs> person you're with. Or learn to, I guess, right? <laughs> Cause yeah, you, I think we all need to learn that. Especially since you're, you know, as long as we're on this plane, we're, we're, we're stuck with ourselves, so we might as well learn to like ourselves and have our, you know, our own conflicts, our inner conflicts be resolved. I mean, I work at that every day. So this is such a really beautiful book, and and not only is your uh, writing and your letters to the river or letters to the sun or whomever you're writing to, not only is um, that like prose, but you have some beautiful prose that you also quote, and Rumi is uh, one of my favorites, so I love this one, uh, which I, I use as an analogy for mediation. Out beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. 
That's that's what <laughs> that's what I hope mediation is like. And then the other one that you have that you quote him is uh, when the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. And that's Rumi. And uh, yeah, you talk about, you know, that we, we don't live in the world, we live in our heads. And we have these uh, inside our corridors, we perceive what we want to perceive, right? And uh, Yes, absolutely. And so it's, uh, it's so fascinating. I, I know I always love it when I go out in nature myself. I'm I'm in awe just when I go out in the ocean and I see the dolphins and uh, any time that I'm in a place that is out in nature, it just inspires me. And I could see that that's really what your life is about. So how how did you write these letters? I mean, it looked like you were writing them when you were on the quest. So how did you actually do it? Sometimes you wrote in the morning. It looks like sometimes you wrote when the sun goes down and the rain Tell us a little bit about how you wrote these. Uh, yeah, it's um, well, you're right. Virtually all of them were written in natural er- areas. Um, and, and I might be sitting next to a river or next to a lake or next to an ocean. And, um, and I, I called it Letters to the River because when I started, um, I was uh, probably like yourself, a fairly highly educated person. I went to... I went to Stanford, I was Phi Beta Kappa, went to graduate school, and so uh, like a lot of people, virtually everyone who goes to school has been trained for uh, whatever, 12, 16 or more years to, uh, trained in the art of thinking. Right. And, and when that happens, uh, we tend to have a point of view, which is almost totally from our heads. Right. Uh, and so... So one day, uh, are you familiar with uh, non-dominant handwriting? Yes, yes. Okay. So, so I, I had spent a certain amount of time, uh, quite a while, um, writing, uh, you know, writing, writing articles for magazines or writing, and I just found myself after a couple of years getting incredibly frustrated because e- even though the articles were well-received, I felt like I wasn't writing in the way I wanted to. So, so I sat down, I was actually sitting next to a, a river at the time, and, um, and I just decided to do some non-dominant hand writing. So, so I put the pen in my right hand, because that's my dominant hand, and I just said, what's the problem with my writing? And, uh, and then I put the pen in my left hand and let, <laughs> I guess, some very childish scrawling come back, but... Yeah. Uh, what came back was your father. <laughs> oh yeah, I read that about your, yeah, yeah. your critical father, right? <laughs> yeah. So that was, and of course, then I took the pen back in my right hand, because that was a surprise, and I said, "Tell me more." And and as as I mentioned in the introduction to the book, I mean, for the next hour, I got all of this insight that when I was writing, I was so concerned about oh, making it. Uh, worrying about pleasing some audience, like whoever would read the magazine, or pleasing right. the editor, or this or that, and 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 how that connected with my judgmental father. And but anyway, after as I said, quite a while writing, I said, "Well, that's all great, and I'm glad for the insights. And what do I do about it?" And <laughs> I put the pen in my left hand, and it said, 
right to the river. So from then on, what I would do is I would sit down and write to whatever was in front of me, Mm -hmm. you know, and it could be a river or a lake or the setting sun and write as if, if I was writing to uh, a friend, uh, a teacher, a lover, and, and I noticed that, um, Maybe on some deep level, the themes I was expressing were the same, but the way I was expressing it seemed much deeper and richer. And so that's how it started. And yeah, You know and what was, it reminded me as I was reading them, you know, and they're so beautiful. You know, I was thinking, oh, my goodness, he must be like in a meditative or a stream of consciousness when he's writing this because – some are sentences, some aren't really sentences. It's just, I was like flowing with you. I could see, I could sense, I could smell, I could feel. Um, so it was more like a stream of consciousness that I that you got into the zone or something. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there were times, of course, when I'd sit down, I would just start by writing Dear River or Dear, you know, uh, right. Son or Dear Son. But And then I would write, but it, it felt so personal and immediate that, yeah, I would get into that place of I'm writing, but I'm feeling totally connected, not only with myself, but with the landscape. And right. at, at times when those would end, I, I would read them and go, well, it started as a letter to the river, but I almost felt at the end, actually, what came out was from the river, not right. to the river. Right, right. Or from uh, from spirit or from source or whatever that it was just yeah. flo- I felt like it was flowing through you as the river was flowing. Kind of that's how it felt to me when I was reading. You know. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think that yeah the fundamental sense was wherever the writing was coming from, and sometimes it would be more the me self or sometimes less me. But it felt like I was writing from a place where. The usual I or ego had lost its separation from the environment or the landscape it was in. So it was writing from a very kind of connected and immersed and embodied space. Yeah, from that place of love. That's that's what it felt like. You know, we talk about so many ways of fighting for love, and you know, uh, in the show, and really everything is a fight for love. But it's like you reached that that peace with love you know <laughs> a peaceful state with everything even when you like looked into the brown eyes of the deer or whatever it was like even though they're scared of you you're just seeing them as this you know part of this whole spiritual nature thing really i enjoyed it so you're t- yeah, and, yeah and go ahead as, as i know as since you talk about love so much and even though my focus wasn't on love, my focus was on uh, uh, getting rid of separation. Right, and connection. Yeah. Love, you know? Yeah. Well, isn't connection really love? Isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, any kind of a connection with a child, with a dog, with a friend, with a lover, um, even even when you connect in business with people that you really enjoy working with. That's that's love. It really is. It's it's love in action. So at least that's the way I see it. Um, I I think ultimately I do too. Yeah. You know, um, um, 
Yeah, because love, you know, people have so many definitions of love. It's it's something you can't really define exactly. It's how people feel it. So, so you have here as your subtitle, A Guide to a Dream Worth Living. And you talk about dreams, and it reminded me of when I was back in college and I, <clears throat> my you know, uh, my minor was Spanish and I had to read Miguel de Unamuno, who was this philosopher, this Spanish philosopher who wrote this play called um, Life is a Dream and then, and Dreams are Dreams. And the whole play is about life not being real, but being a dream. (laughs) And you kind of talk about that in your book too. So um, yeah. So tell us about that, about your uh, subtitle and your view of dreams. Yeah, I I I probably use the the I probably use that word dream a, a little differently than the way it's uh, used kind of normally in conversation. Normally in conversation, you use the word dream, and people think, "Oh, that's what happens at night when your eyes are closed and yeah. you're <laughs> sleeping." It's like an event, and. And normally, people take the point of view that, oh, if it's a dream, it's unreal. And um, but I, since I was part of my background was uh, when I, when my spiritual path first began, I was really strongly attracted to indigenous and Native American mm. um, points of view, and I even apprenticed to um, Native American medicine person for a few years. But I. I pretty much learned that in most of the indigenous world, they take the point of view that we're dreaming all the time. Right, right. And that, that our daily waking life has, has, is a kind of dream that has certain rules, and then, the dream, and then our nighttime life is, is, is actually a state of awareness or consciousness that has other rules. Right. And... Um, and and when I talk, when I say that, and especially talking to you, I realize, oh, this is right up your um, your alley. Because the difference is that in our waking life, we learn the rules are about separation. Right. You know, mm-hmm. I'm me, you're you. That's a rock. That's a water bottle. That's a tree. And and all of a sudden, and and those are separate objects and separate. And tomorrow they'll still be separate and everything. Yeah, but but then you know when we lie down and fall asleep, or and and all of a sudden we find ourselves in a state where uh, I and you and the rock and the tree and the water bottle are not so separate anymore. Right. And and the way that I interact with the tree causes the tree to change, and then as the tree changes, it affects me, and so everything is more permeable. Permeable. And everything is related and affecting each other. And um, in the the indigenous world, they would say, "Oh, that that those kind of rules. The way it is at night, where nothing is separate and everything's influencing other each other." They would say that's much closer to the way the world really works mm-hmm. than this kind of separate point of view that we that we have and assume during the day. Right. And then when we meditate, um, then we get into another one. Or like when you were in that zone, you know, when you were writing these things, then you're one with everything as well. That's the true reality. 
And then the other dream is dreams of what you want to do with your life, you know, dreams of how you want to change the world or dreams or visions of of what the world could be. You know, so there's so many ways to look at dreams, but I, I love this one, a guide to a dream worth living. That's, um, so you're... Yeah, I, yeah one of, uh, you know, having read the book, you know, one of the examples I gave is... Um, looking up at the stars at night. Mm, um, yeah. and, and quantum physics will say there is no objective reality. The idea that there's an objective reality that's always the same, that just doesn't exist. Right. So I gave that example of we look up at the stars at night, and maybe on a clear night there's something like 2,000 stars. And, um, and the question I ask is, is the Big Dipper real? Mm-hmm. And 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 I use that as an analogy to say, no, the stars are real. The stars are real. They're kind of part of primal reality, and they're there. But who, who or whatever draws the lines between those seven stars to make it look like a pot? Yeah, that is totally imaginary. Right. But but and you look in two thousand stars, you could. You could draw the lines in a million different, millions of different ways right. and see totally different figures. Right. And I think the the bigger point of view, and it's and it's kind of its implications are enormous, is that most of the ways that we see the world are because of lines that are drawn, and they're pretty much arbitrary. But we've learned them our whole lives, and it's then it becomes really hard to unlearn them. Right, you know, right, so, yeah. So, and the example was, I think my father pointed out the Big Dipper when I was eight years old out in the backyard, and I'd never seen it before then. But when he pointed out, it all became one figure for me. Mm-hmm. And then I, and then those from then on, those seven stars weren't related to the other, you know, two thousand stars. Right, right. And now, even though rationally I can see how arbitrary that is, even though I can see how arbitrary it is, I can't look up at the sky and not see it. It's, right. <laughs> I, can't just, I can't just undo it. And we have one of those apps on our iPhone that um, show all the constellations. So when you put your phone up, you pull, you, you know, pull up the app, and then you point your iPhone toward the sky, and then it shows you all the constellations. There's Scorpio, there's whatever, you know? And uh, it's just, (laughs) there's the Big Dipper, there's everything. And so you see it, the lines are drawn right on that app. So you see it even more clearly. It's, uh, yeah, it's really funny. And, and of course, the big, big, uh, obvious um, conclusion from that 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 I make is, Virtually everything we've learned from our culture about the ru- the rules of how things work is kind of like that Big Dipper, kind of arbitrary. Yes. And it's only because we agree, agree on it that everybody sees it. Exactly. But then the problem is when, we, when we've learned to see the world one way and we can't undo it and see it differently, virtually every way we learn to see the world has also negative consequences. Yes, and yes, because then we, we can see, from? yeah, we can see people as being different from us, different color, different race, yep. different country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, for, we, yeah. we just 
lose that oneness that, that we really are. Well, let's talk a little bit about a vision quest because that's pretty fascinating to me. So um, how would you define a vision quest? Well, I think, and I guess um, mostly for your listening audience who may yeah. not be that familiar with it, the the easiest way that I uh, to would introduce it is... Um, Let's just say Christ went out into the desert for 40 days and nights and fasted. Right. That was a vision quest. Buddha, in 500 years before Christ, he went into the forest in India and fasted and became enlightened. Right. Uh, Moses, when he was leading uh, the people out of Egypt and was uh, climbed Mount Sinai and fasted, asking for advice. And Mohammed went into a cave and fasted. So all of those processes involve essentially three things. One, it's like going out into nature. So it involves the presence of nature, Christ in the desert, Buddha in the forest, Moses on top of Mount Sinai. So nature is one of the the primary um, uh, factors in a vision quest. You go there alone into nature and you fast for some length of time. You go without food. Certainly in the vision quest I lead, people have water. So what happens in that when you go away from human companionship and books and entertainment and you're there with nature and you're fasting, some of the deep, deep longings and truths of your life start to come up, Mm -hmm. ones that you may never get to when you're living a life with all of the list of things to do. So. So it's a, a process that involves solitude, nature, and fasting. And people people usually go there with some intention and purpose to, um, to deal with some of the uh, dysfunctional aspects of their life, to say goodbye to them, to create a rite of passage saying that I'm no longer living as a child, I'm, I'm ready to become an adult, right. or to find their direction and purpose what I've come here on this earth to do and express and 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 bring into into my community. So, so how long are are usually these vision quests that you lead? Like for the people who are going to fast, are they fasting for a couple of weeks, uh, a week? What what are they fasting? But they have water. That's the only thing they have, right? Yeah. Well, in the way that I do it, the uh, the whole process, the whole program is 11 days long. But the, So there's, there's uh, four days of preparation, a lot of teaching, a lot of working with people's intention and purpose. And during that whole time, people are eating and camped out. But for the solo time, when they're actually alone in wilderness and fasting, that's four days and four nights. And so then, are they so you just leave them somewhere like you guide them somewhere and then everybody goes out on their own is that how that works uh, sort of it's uh, in that um let's just uh, i mean I, I i just finished leading a vision quest here in vermont on on sunday so that was um just a little while ago, sunday uh the 22nd of september so in that after the preparation the four days of preparation, we go to a trailhead, we hike in, it was about three mile hike in, and then we come to a base camp, and base camp is where I will stay for the 
four days they're out. And then that afternoon from base camp, people wandered out around the lake and through the forest looking to find a spot that felt really right to them. And so... So I don't just take them somewhere and leave them. I go out with them and and then kind of show them the area, and they wander through it to find that space that that they really resonate with, that feels right for the process they want to do. And then the next morning, they come back to base camp that night, the fourth night, and then the next morning that we have a ritual and a process where they're sent out, and and then they go out to that those spots that they've picked and. Uh, spend the next four days and nights there. Wow. So what about um, you're out there with wild animals? Is that ever a problem? (laughs) Um, Virtually never. I mean, I think what it is is wild animals um, kind of inhabit this big category in our minds that's fearful, but... um, you know, it's, you know, it's like look at every newspaper. What's the most dangerous animal? Uh, I yeah, think, yeah, think yeah. Humans. Yeah, I was just thinking not so much, not deer or, you know, I mean, the only thing I ever worry about here out in California is rattlesnakes. But you know, if you stay away from them, you're okay. You know, you just don't want to step on one or, you know. But I, I guess it would depend on where you're going. I would think in Vermont you might have copperheads or you might have, I don't know. Well, you know, I go to a lot of different areas. In Vermont, there's really no, there's really no poisonous snakes in Vermont. Oh, So the only thing someone might be worried about in Vermont is bears, but they're black bears, they're not grizzly bears. Oh, yeah. And they might be worried about moose, just not that moose are hostile or dangerous, but they're just enormously large. Yeah, but, yeah. But there are places I go where there are not only bears, but there are, you know, poisonous rattlesnakes and or there are mountain lions. So Yeah, they have mountain lions out here. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. But, but basically, um, I mean, the I certainly tell people all about those animals and what you know i give people a real reality check of okay what's reality and what's uh yeah. fear, just crazy fearful story right, right um and but virtually every every wild animal uh pretty much knows that humans are the top of the food chain and they really do um we don't we don't tend to know that ourselves because we don't live in nature much anymore but right right those animals know it's it's us that's dangerous, and they generally try and avoid us if yeah. they can. So, um, so you talked about kind of like who's attracted to someone who's going through a change in life or some kind of a transformation in their mind or something. Those are the people that are attracted to it, right? Uh, that's certainly uh, some of some of the people who are attracted are yes. So it could be a it could be some kind of class, uh, you know, external change like. Oh, I've just gotten divorced. Now I want to go on a vision quest to find who I am. Right. Who I am now, because for the last twenty years I've been part of a partnership, and that's gone. So, yeah. so people might be going because of some external change in their life. Right. Or so, they might be going because of an a kind of internal realization. Right. Some people say because uh, of things that happened in their life or whatever realize I've lived my whole life 
playing small or playing a victim, and I want to put an end to that. So right. they they come for some kind of internal rite of passage. Right. Or they want to find out who they really are, maybe. You yeah. Know? That, you know, some yeah, do, sometimes what, yeah, in some the... Yeah, some people come to find their, what I would call their purpose or their direction. Right. What I've come here to do in this lifetime. Right. Well, believe it or not, we are out of time. So I want to, I just want to say the name of your book again, Letters to the River. Beautiful prose like letters, just amazing. You feel them. A Guide to a Dream Worth Living, and it's by Sparrow Hart. Sparrow, would you just give us your website? And it's time to go. All right. My website is www.questforvision.com. That's all lowercase, and the four is F-O-R, questforvision.com. Well, Sparrow, good. I'm sure they can find out not only about your book, but about your quest. So if they want to join, they can learn about it there. So... Yeah, let's keep in touch, and thank you for this beautiful book, and uh, and we will talk again soon. All right? Well, thank you. I've, I've loved talking to you. The time has just flown. I know. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Uh, follow us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. right here on KUCI and visit our website at conflicthealing.com and go to our podcast and listen and review and rate us. We'd love it. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. 